Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and this week we explore the role of military technology in modern warfare. Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Despite Putin's expectation of a swift victory, over one year on from his full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that country's defenders are still fighting, and indeed fighting back. One important area in which Ukraine has managed to stay ahead of Russia is in military technology. And a new report from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change examines the role of military technology in the Russia-Ukraine war and considers the lessons that can be learnt from it. Well, one of the authors is our very own Dr. Melanie Garson, Associate Professor in International Conflict Resolution and International Security here in the UCL Department of Political Science, and also Acting Director of Geopolitics and Cyber Policy Lead at the Tony Blair Institute. Regular podcast listeners may remember our episode with Melanie last November when we focused on the role of global tech companies in Ukraine. And I'm delighted to say that Melanie joins me now to continue the conversation. Melanie, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. And I thought it would be good to start with just a bit of a background on what the Tony Blair Institute actually is. So, so what is it? What are its aims? What sorts of questions is it asking? So the Tony Blair Institute uh, for Global Change works actually across over 30 countries. We are just under about 800 people working quite closely to help equip leaders with radical but practical plans for governing as a whole. And very much thinking, underpinning that where tech sits with it and that, um, that most politicians in many countries often treat technology as a side issue and, and that protects real dangers and how do we really make sure that it's part of the transformational change of what will be the 21st century strategic state? And you want to give us a flavour of the sorts of issues that the Institute is working on at the moment and beyond your own area of focus? Absolutely. I mean, we work on everything with helping of politics, what's an optimistic political vision for strategic states and what are the outcomes they want, thinking of economics and public financing, how do we uh, fund and support that kind of state, Uh, from climate and energy policy, how can we think that uh, the strategic state can achieve net zero, how do we shift to preventative and personalised models of medicine that improve quality and quantity of life, Uh, definitely on the science and tech side where we help people generate the ideas to build the companies that help countries flourish and from geopolitics and thinking about how we can really build that open and interconnected and secure world where each human can prosper. And we'll go on in just a moment to talk about a recent report that you've co-authored. But do you want to give us a f- sense of your kind of overall, your your personal overall research programme and the sorts of issues that you're you're looking at? Yep. So my work uh, really sits at the heart of what I call tech geopolitics and particularly cyber. So thinking about that secure, interconnected world and where the internet ecosystem 
is fit for purpose for everything that we need to overlay on top of it. And from a geopolitical perspective, that now involves everything from the subsea cables that run uh, across all parts of the world that we don't think about at all and all the way up to uh, now space and where the satellites are part of that communication infrastructure and everything in between so that's where making sure that there's services operational but also that it's if you want uh, clean like running water uh, in some fit for purpose in the sense that the information ecosphere is fit for uh, the kind of democratic politics that we need and that also that our economies are protected from the kind of cyber threats and the things that we usually think about when people say the word cyber. So um, really rather a large and ever-expanding surface area that we think about. Sounds like you have your work cut out. <laughs> Lots of big and important issues there. So let's um, focus in then on military technology. And this may seem like an obvious question, but I think it's useful to begin with what actually is military technology? What are we talking about here? What kinds of things are included within that concept? It's really interesting because uh, in some ways that nexus has got a lot smaller. So military technology, generally we think about it as the application of technology for use in warfare. And we usually think about that as tech that doesn't have a commercial application or it lacks any sort of usefulness in civilian life or that you need particularly military training uh, to use it. But as I said, that line is super, super blurred now because we're thinking thinking a lot about dual-use technologies, and dual-use technologies have always existed. So if you think about a knife, it's easily, you know, thinking about how it was used in uh, to kill someone or how it was used to cut your cucumbers. But on the other hand, when the sword or various sort of uses of the sword came around, its efficiency or its effectiveness was really altered by the extent of the training and your expertise in using it. And in terms of kind of concretely particular things, you focus quite a lot in the paper on drones and these sorts of things. So unmanned, what's the phrase? Unmanned aerial vehicles. Is that the right phrase? <laughs> uh, which I guess, um, you know, we, we know drones very well from, from civilian life, as you suggest, as well as from the world of warfare. Yeah, exactly. And it's the extent that these um, technologies take on a different function in the battlefield with different rules of engagement that they would have in civilian life. And obviously, in the extent that they can be weaponized particularly uh, drones in themselves. And that's been in the news, um, <laughs> uh, certainly over the last 24 hours with the uh, question of whether uh, Ukraine or US had sort of sent drones to kill Putin. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, we should explain to listeners that we're recording this uh, a few days ahead of uh, actually issuing the podcast. So yes, uh, alleged at least attack on the Kremlin has just taken place just before we're recording. Yeah, one of the things I found very interesting in the report, actually, was you talk quite a lot about the role of hobbyists and how they've been quite involved in the war in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian state has been able to draw on the kind of expertise of people whose hobby it is to fly drones and do other such things. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I guess that also speaks to the the kind of crossover aspect of technology here. Yeah, it's been a really interesting aspect, both in, if we're thinking in the cyber domain, and a lot of people have thought about it originally, of 
thinking of uh, the hacktivists that joined uh, the army, but these sort of being able to have that agility to draw on this platform of uh, people engaged in the ecosystem. And when the ecosystem is not as centralized, and in the difference we draw in this is the distinction really with Russia, where everything has been very formalized and centralized, and the nexus between civilian and military technology is very closed and or close and closed. And, once those people are always involved in the state, it makes it difficult to exponentially grow that. Whereas in Ukraine, they've been really able to integrate these different flows of both civilian and military tech and the people themselves and using the companies and the private companies and the people that have trained on some of these systems to integrate as part of the army because often some of those people are actually more expert or have been using them. The hobbyists and the commercial developers of the technology have been using them more often than actually the military has been using them. Okay, we know what we're talking about then. Do you want to sum up what questions you're asking in this paper about military technology? What are the core issues that you're trying to drive at? Well, one of the things that we're trying to drive at in this paper, and it's thinking of what I call um, intelligent power in what we call an artificially intelligent age, it's thinking about how we have to rethink or how modern militaries have to rethink both where the development of their technology is happening and also the agility of the supply, how they're going to access these technologies and also what the technologies actually rely on, which is also on the communication networks in this. So really that defence and strategic stability are no longer just about this, you know, how much can you spend your way out of it, but also provide fostering this environment where the military can act coherently in all different types of warfare, whether that's physical, cognitive and virtual uh, warfare. And that needs a greater um, sort of joint conceptualization with commercial uh, entities or, if you want, the sort of hobbyist individuals that are working on that. So it's thinking about and really thinking forward of if you're looking at what the army of 2040 is going to look like, who do you need to be sitting with right now in order to develop that? And what's the answer to that? Uh, <laughs> well, we're seeing this. So uh, the U.S. Department of Defense has been uh, uh, working on something called a project convergence that really has said that bringing together leaders from data governments, from AI, from across the technologies to be a lot more agile. NATO has opened the first, um, so the first of what they call their Diana Labs, which is looking at this defense and innovation lab to ecosystem of bringing together the two. That sadly is not been opened at UCL and actually the first lab has been opened over Imperial <laughs> but it's uh, that really beginning to host those sort of ecosystems those campuses that are going to bring together the military the commercial the academic into the space to do that joint thinking so that people are on the same page of where it goes forward. And are there lessons from the war in Ukraine that can helpfully be learned about just how to do this effectively and what needs to be done? Ukraine has been particularly successful in being able to integrate quite quickly 
all the different strands. So they've had, on one level, strands of different weaponry coming from them as the way the Allies have provided it from all different sort of um, streams. And they've had to be able to synthesize those together quite quickly, train the people to be able to do it. Part of that has happened because they've been quite tech forward as a nation before the conflict happened. So, and they've had, and we see the access to that nexus has been vastly different from where we've seen in Russia, where there's been instances of them actually having to order some of the commercial parts for some of their weaponry from like Alibaba Express. So uh, having the chains and having those clear flows are going to be really important, thinking about where you can integrate them. And again, what has been critical and what we talked a little bit more about on the last podcast was about the communication system, because all this runs via the either internet systems or via the communications network and being able to rely on that being clean and operational for all these technologies to function. Interesting. So, okay, so you're suggesting that military technology is very important in modern warfare, and you're suggesting that in order to develop that effectively, it's important to have forward-looking attitude in the country towards technology and to have cooperation between government, between researchers, between the commercial private sector, all um, driving innovation forward in this area. What are the risks that governments and others need to be aware of in thinking about how to do this effectively? Well, there's always that risk of thinking about the extent, I think with any of these technologies, uh, the key thing becomes actually the tension between the policy on it and the innovation and where there's sometimes a disjunct with that particularly on emerging technologies and particularly the extent of where the private sector may have the advantage on some of these technologies before the military and certainly before that uh, policy catches up with it, but policy fearing that clamps down on the innovation too quickly. But that's why the it becomes even more important to have these close-knit tech ecosystems. So the advantage of having the close-knit ecosystem that allows that mutual sort of beneficial circulation uh, between the sectors that has that kind of transparency will allow for greater agility on a hyper-connected battlefield. So we see countries that, uh, similar to Israel, for instance, where the close nexus between the military and commercial tech companies and that increased collaboration has given an advantage on the future battlefield. So Estonia has also leveraged that kind of cooperation. So in those smaller countries, having that gives a distinct advantage. Hmm, it's interesting. I guess so. I'm a total non-expert in this area. I know absolutely nothing in this area at all. But I, I guess to me, I hear you talking about what facilitates innovation, and you know, we tend to think that innovation is advanced through having a very kind of open culture, having lots of people involved, people coming and going, all of this kind of thing. And then when I think about military technology, I kind of think, well got to be very careful with that you've got to be there's lots of it is secret you know you've got to be uh, very sure that you know exactly who knows what and the wrong people don't find out things so those feels to me like there's a tension there between on the one hand the needs of 
innovation and on the other hand the needs of security is that correct and if so how can you deal with it effectively at the heart of this is that these are all dual use technologies and or most of them i mean other than uh, i mean even nuclear it's a dual use technology so these are all uh, going to be used in multiple ways and thinking about how they're enabled in different spheres will make sure that when we bring those together, I mean, obviously, there's legal ways of thinking about that, the contracts and the NDAs and how that's all brought together. And yes, there's always in any, you know, system, and we saw that with the Discord leak, so someone that goes rogue and leaks all sorts of information and papers, and sometimes that uh, does happen. But in the end, the military aspect of it will be how it's then enabled and how it's used and then how it's strategically used. And that bit of it can still be kept to a point secret. You're not necessarily sharing your strategy, but you are having a closer conversation of just making sure that absolutely at the edge of the technology being developed. And that that's also being developed responsibly because sometimes it's a two-way street. Sometimes the military might see the dangers in some of the technologies before the commercial entities actually see it as well. And so you've talked about the kind of ecosystem that you need to get going. And you've talked a little bit about some places that do this well. So Ukraine does it at least better than Russia. You've talked about Israel doing this uh, relatively well as well. Is it possible to kind of define the conditions in which things are going to work well? Is it possible to kind of take a step further back and understand, you know, what do the politicians need to do? What do uh, the commercial actors need to do? Uh, Are there particular background factors that are important in determining whether a country is successful in this area? Yeah, I think where we think about sort of at the political level, and I think this goes through the whole of society and really thinking about security and defence, if we even just, you know, step back from the military technology, because it's a really small part of what we think about as security and defence for a nation as we go forward. But at the highest political level, we're going to have to think about how a country thinks about using tech to transform and modernize. And that's really a big part of that is going to be investing in tech and AI era infrastructure. So moving away from very siloed structures and duplicative structures towards a lot more of a shared and interoperable uh, infrastructure and thinking about the platforms where these can be made to uh, share the sort of learning and that kind of agility, really thinking about uh, being more agile and responsive and targeted, things that governments and countries aren't usually uh, great at. And But I think behind it, these partnerships really need to have sort of have real clear purpose so you have that sort of greater appetite for risk and innovation but also bring in that greater expertise and link from between government between military between the private sector that can really inform the direction going forward i should of course ask we're talking here about military technology the use of ai in war we've heard a lot in recent weeks about concerns about artificial intelligence and how it might have potentially highly detrimental effects upon the future of humanity. And many of the most sort of lurid future scenarios that get talked about 
relate, of course, to the role of AI in warfare. How worried should we be? And what particularly should we be focusing our worries on? There is a lot out there at the moment and uh, generative AI has certainly been a game changer. And it's not one that's been um, unanticipated. And I think it was really, um, I think Craig Martell, who's sort of uh, in the US, was talking this week about generative AI and particularly in disinformation. And, and it wasn't just a fact of what it can create, but also the way that it sounds authoritative in what it's doing. So it opens a lot of questions of how we use it and where we look at, but also take sort of thinking a little bit of is it overhyped where can we spot it and it comes back to anything along the development of these technologies and we said there's sort of dual use in a sense I always say with every capability comes great vulnerability we always have to think about where are the vulnerabilities uh, within everything that we build and then trying to pre-think. I mean, and often I say they're also dual use from the other side in the sense that they can both be uh, good and bad, right? People can use them for good or they could use them for ill. And so and the irony in a lot of this tech development is from the internet itself is that the people who think about the tech, these amazing great thinkers, are huge, massive optimists. They're usually trying to solve a great problem. And they never anticipate when they create it that somebody's going to do something awful with it. So it's just that's a great power in the people that uh, are thinking this through. And there's a tension between, well, we don't want everybody always thinking about every awful application or something because that will constrain innovation. So it's thinking about where in the system do we need to promote the responsible use of the development? Where is it being used? Do we know what's in it? So thinking about things like software bill of materials or where we think of, do we know what's in the black box do we teach people to use things responsibly do we you know and this is kind of it's a lot of what we do when we think at tbi and the thinking about the strategic state and thinking about the tech enabled state when we take that we step back and say okay what do we have to build into the system that this actually works for us and that we can make it work for us and with us so lots of interesting questions of human and machine teaming. And I think I think it was a useful quote that I heard recently about generative AI in particular. It said, it's not like the C, having the CEO answer your question. It's like having a thousand interns do it for you. Right? <laughs> and, and I think that's what people forget about it. It's sort of, it is a machine, <laughs> Mm. And it's thinking about where it sort of, you know, it's a set of processes and mm. it is kind of like the thousand interns doing the work. But still, at some point, where do you take that away? But the the danger is people feel it's authoritative. To me, it's a bit more like a magic eight ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, that metaphor of the thousand interns, I mean, you know, one of the worries that many people have is that we have the thousand robots or the hundred thousand robots that are armed and at some point kind of turn against us or they get into the hands of a malign actor who you know isn't terribly concerned about what long-term consequences there might be down the road and isn't interested in building a system that ensures that these technologies are used 
for good rather than for ill. And suddenly we kind of lose control and it's very difficult to get control back. Are these realistic concerns? <laughs> it depends what book you read. <laughs> <laughs> there is always that tension, particularly when, and I think that's one of the great, great myths of AI, when people anthropomorphize AI, is also like the great AI, and really thinking about what is it made up of at this point. So we have the machine learning processes, and we have processes that add in, you know, the, the sort of set element of autonomy, which is what people think about when they begin to think about killer robots and the extent of uh, that level and the real questions of autonomous weapon systems and where is something the House of Lords is considering at the moment, in particular in the UK, looking at the US have just released a review on what we mean by autonomous weapon systems and what the responsibility has to be in this. But thinking about where do we make sure we maintain the human or the human interaction within that sort of point of decision-making of the use of the weapon. So we already have autonomous weapon systems in a system, and we already, a lot of them are used for defensive purposes. So many of the defensive shields or the anti-missile technology are functionally autonomous, or they have very, very, technically could be semi-autonomous, a very, very small window to intervene and prevent the process, but they're reactive. And we have to think about but whether that more offensive capability of using it, where do we decide to draw the line, or where do we make sure that there's the norms of the responsible development and responsible use of it, that humans have to be part of the actual decision-making process. Hmm. A lot of it, there's questions about how much different levels of autonomy will drive down the cost of war so that war would be more accessible. There's, you know, a lot that we have to still unpack. Most countries, and we do worry about the malign actors and the ones that aren't part of the responsible normative framework, but most countries are still taking a measured approach to it so obviously this is military technology so you go back to is there a black box and you don't know what people do with it but it comes it points to more the dangers of geopolitical fractures this is where we sort of where does the intersection between the geopolitical factors really affect what we worry about in the tech because it's the geopolitical fragmentation that we have right now that worries us more because that's going to impact our trust in how the tech is being used. So it's sort of where do we turn our attention on what to fix first? I'm not sure whether I'm reassured or not. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're coming close towards the end. So let me just ask you one final kind of wrap up question. What are your top specific policy recommendations in light of all the work that you've done, in light of the report, your new report here? What are the key particular things that you would want to get across to policymakers today? I think there's a big question still, and similar to we talked previously, about where private companies that are part of controlling the whole communications infrastructure are sitting in this wider picture because that will materially affect our use of this technology. So even 
you know, we've got the companies part of the development of it, but the companies that are part of the use of it and where that can, a good example we cite or um, we touch upon in favor is Starlink in particular, for example, that gave all the sort of, uh, was hailed as backing up the communications infrastructure in Ukraine, materially tipping the balance of power in the war, then stepped back and was like, well, hang on a minute. We didn't realize that that same communications infrastructure is being used as part of uh, the drone warfare aspect of the conflict. And we're a commercial company and we're not set up for this. So there's a lot of questions where... Uh, private companies still need to understand the geopolitical implications of where their tech is being provided. And that's not to say that they shouldn't, but they're going to have greater transparency in thinking about where they're intervening and why. If we look at what's happening in Sudan today in the internet is if anyone's following sort of internet connectivity and access whether where there's blocks and where there's not and do we see the claims behind the response a much more complex uh, conflict for uh, any commercial entity to think well do we get involved now it's really messy but the principles we went into one should they stand in another and how do we make that rationalize? So I think having greater transparency given the amount of power that is concentrated privately in that infrastructure is really, really important. Building these close-knit ecosystems, tech ecosystems, not just for military tech, but for the whole of society. And that goes for education, that goes for environment, that because that is all part of what is security and what is national security and economic security. Uh, in today's world, making sure that's really even-handed. So you've talked about AI. We're doing a project. Um, we'll talk about it. It's another podcast on <laughs> what is access to the future of compute, right? Which is the massive amount of power. So we've touched on generative AI that relies on sort of these large language models require a huge amount of power to do that. Not every country is going to be able to build that. And do we have the potential for a new digital divide or do we have to think really cleverly as to how we provide countries with the access to compute power that they need to do all the data-driven decision-making, all the aspects of technology that can really be used for good. And then thinking about how the international community comes together and thinks about the supply chains that are part of all this technology. So one of the things in this paper we raised that Ukraine was successful in having this sort of agile supply chain from multiple sources that it was able to integrate really quickly. That was because of the relationships that it had because of the way that NATO worked together. That not, might not be the case in every country and every system, and not just a geopolitical crisis that's a conflict, but maybe one that's a, a driven by a volcano eruption or an environmental event, or sort of how do we think about that technology supply chain for critical needs that is coming together, and are we as an international community set up to underwrite that not just in Ukraine, sort of what are the lessons we take away and uh, take that forward. And it's going to be really interesting to see how things like Diana, how the innovation accelerator uh, comes out and sort of what the impacts of that in the future. But certainly on the cyber side, the Ukraine's benefited from having multiple nations from, from like this uh, cyber uh, center of excellence that they've all worked together, provided that advice and to, to be able to strengthen 
as part of that collaboration. So increased collaboration and cooperation, information sharing is actually the key to unpinning some of the fears that are founded by uh, some of our dystopian visions of where AI or any emerging tech can go. So if I can sum all of this up in one phrase, it feels like fostering close-knit tech ecosystems, which is one thing you said there, is just absolutely fundamental for all of this, making sure that the relevant people in governments and private sector, researchers across the, across the globe, so far as possible, are speaking with each other, engaging with each other, thinking through these, these issues collaboratively and collectively. That's the key thing. Yeah, and not just, you know, it's move fast and, you know, sometimes velocity is move fast and break things. We might have to move a little slower and keep it all together, but um, make sure that we still get to the outcome. And I think it's the, you know, it's stepping back and having that picture of what's the outcome we want here and are we building towards that outcome? Well, fantastic, Melanie. Thank you so much. It's great to have you back. And as you say, I think we'll need to have you back on several <laughs> times. As I mean, there are these huge potential transformations that are coming down the line as a result of AI and, and rapidly develop, developing AI in so many different aspects of politics. So we focused here on military technology. But as you say, there are so many other aspects of politics and society that are going to be changing over the coming years. So definitely, we will have you back uh, very soon. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. We've been looking at Dr. Melanie Garson's paper for the Tony Blair Institute, co-authored with Pete Furlong and Jigar Kakad, entitled Software and Hard War, Building Intelligent Power for Artificially Intelligent Warfare. As ever, the details of the paper, including a link, are in the show notes for this episode. Next week, coinciding with the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia on the 17th of May, we will be discussing LGBTQ rights activism in Tunisia and escalating repression of LGBTQ communities in parts of the Middle East and North Africa. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you use. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could take a moment of time to rate or review us too. I'm Alan Rennick. This episode was researched by Alice Hart and produced by Eleanor Kingwell-Bannum. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.